Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and powerful. Lord, it changes us. Lord, your word divides between that which is fleshly and that which is spiritual. And so, Father, this morning we pray you speak to our hearts, Lord. Help us to understand spiritual things, Lord, which the natural man can't receive because they are of the Spirit of God. But, Lord, your Spirit in us, Lord, will bear testimony to the truth. So speak to our hearts and help us to understand, Lord, how these things which were spoken to the nation of Israel, how they apply to us and how they can be a challenge and an encouragement and a blessing. We just give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're journeying through the Minor Prophets. We're almost at the end of the book of Hosea. And we're in that kind of final section, in a sense, um, where we're looking at, although God, God is speaking of the wrath that he's going to bring on the nation, we still see God's mercy even in that. And we'll see that come out this morning. Uh, we're going to attempt uh, 11, chapters 11 and 12 today. And then next week, Lord willing, uh, we'll close out the book with chapters 13 and 14. And we just see this incredible love story uh, throughout the book of Hosea. Hosea is told to go and take a wife uh, of whoredoms, as it says in uh, the King James, but a prostitute, basically. And he's told to love her unconditionally, even though she was unfaithful to him. And we see then in that God's incredible love for his people, that even though God's people committed idolatry, they went after false gods and so on, that God never stopped loving them. And then we get to that almost that, that wonderful high point in the book in chapter 3, just three verses, but probably some of the most incredible uh, verses in Scripture. And we just see the gospel laid out there, how God tells Hosea to go and to purchase his wife back. By that point, a little bit like the prodigal son, she'd lost everything. She'd been sold into slavery. In fact, she was about to be sold at auction. I mean, stripped of everything. She had nothing left. And then Hosea comes in, her husband, and buys her back and clothes her and promises to care for her and love her. And that is exactly what God has done for each of us. It's just, you know, I keep saying how much I've fallen in love with this book as we've been teaching it. But there are so many models and there's types. And it is, I, I, to me, at this stage, I, I can't think of another book in the Old Testament where the gospel comes through so clearly. It really is just a book that speaks of God's redemption and his mercy and his love for his people. So we're going to go into chapter 11, and as you see, we just look at God's continuing love for Israel. And so it begins, it says, When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Now, you may remember in the book of Exodus, God had said there a message to Pharaoh right at the beginning, before the plagues, before anything else had happened. And he said to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. Let my son go that he may serve me. So God even then was saying that Israel were like a child to him, like a son. Of course, never feel, if you're a lady, that the Bible is sexist. I've heard so many people try and say those kind of things over the time. You know, recognize that when the Bible speaks of sons, typically, speaking of the firstborn, the firstborn was the one who would inherit. They were the one who would get the inheritance from their parents. And we see, of course, with numerous examples in the Old Testament, particularly with uh, Jacob and Esau and so on, how the inheritance was something, well, Jacob certainly sought after it, and many did. 
There's that great account in Numbers 27 with the sons of Zelophehad, um, the eldest daughter being a young lady by the name of Marla. And yes, that's where we got the name. Um, and they didn't have any sons. And so they go to Moses and say, you know, well, we don't want to not inherit that which was our fathers. And Moses goes to the Lord and it's agreed that the daughters would then inherit. But the idea of the, the son, typically in the Old Testament, uh, and when it's a firstborn son, will be the one who would inherit everything. We have that wonderful verse in the New Testament, and I do take issue with some of the modern versions that try and uh, modernize it. Uh, Behold what manner of love the Father has poured upon us, or bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God, not the children of God. That misses the point. The sons of God. Why the sons? Because the sons were the ones who would inherit everything. So whether you're male or female in Christ, you get to inherit the inheritance that God had provided for his firstborn are poured upon us. So whether you're male or female, you get that portion. So you want the son's portion, because that is the portion. So it's not a a sexist thing at all. And here God speaks about Israel as his son, but again, in that same context, the one to whom he would give everything. And again, notice he says, he wanted Pharaoh to let them go, because obviously God's plan was to bring the nation out of Egypt. Of course, Pharaoh doesn't. And as a result of this, God then takes away his firstborn. See, Pharaoh was trying to hold captive God's firstborn, and God says, okay, well, I will take away your firstborn. And that, of course, is the final plague. But you see, when Israel Israel were just that fledgling nation in Egypt, and again, for the sake of his promises to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God loved Israel. And he saw their affliction, and he sent Moses to draw them out. Of course, Moses, his name means to draw out. Moses himself was drawn out of the bulrushes, but his name means to draw out. And God's plan for him was he would draw the people out, lead the people out. And yet Matthew applies this verse that we're looking at here, Hosea 11.1, to Jesus, who, of course, you know at the time when the Magi arrived somewhere up to two years after the birth of Jesus, the family living back home in Nazareth by this point, they go to the temple, so to, to the palace, to Herod's palace in Jerusalem, and say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Herod saw Ed. He didn't like any challenge to his throne. So he tries to find out where Jesus, the Messiah, was to be born. And of course, they go to the book of Micah. They find out that it's to be Bethlehem. And so he sends his men down to Bethlehem, and they kill all the babes up to two years old because of the timing they've got from the Magi. Now, as a result of this, although Jesus wasn't in Bethlehem by that point, he'd already been back home, as Luke tells us, gone back to Nazareth with the family. But then, nevertheless, they flee. The family flee. God warns them in the dream, warns Joseph, and they go down to Egypt. And they stay there, an incredible kind of model, because obviously the nation of Israel had gone down to Egypt because, as Abraham was told, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So they were to be taken out of the land of Israel, where they were put in this safe environment in Egypt, where they would grow and become a nation. And then they would come back into the land, of course, through Moses and ultimately Joshua. Well, Jesus himself was taken out of the land, taken down to Egypt, protected until this threat upon his life had gone. And then once Herod had died, then he comes back into the land of Israel. It's the only record we have in Scripture of Jesus ever leaving the land of Israel, which is quite interesting. Because without any internet, without any kind of media that we typically think of today. No mobile phones back then. I know young people find it very hard to believe. But, you know, there was none of that that technology, and yet Jesus 
changed the world. And he never traveled apart from this one occasion outside of a country that's smaller than Wales. Amazing. But the interesting thing is, as I say, that Matthew applies this verse to Jesus. It says, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son. Of course, Matthew's saying this is speaking of Jesus. Obviously, it is speaking of the nation of Israel, but in type, it's speaking of Jesus. And we said a few weeks ago, or last week, I think it was, when we were looking um, in the previous chapters, how incredible it is that Jesus goes down to Egypt. It's symbolic of bondage and slavery and everything else. And it's as if we have this picture here that God allows his son to go to that place, that worst possible place. Why? Because that's where his people people have ended up going, and to rescue them. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us. It's while we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were at the lowest point, and God sends his son to where we were to bring us out as well. There's a lovely model in that. Verse 2 goes on and says, As they called them, so they went from them and sacrificed unto Balaam and burned incense to graven images. It's speaking of the prophets that God then sent to the nation to warn them, to teach them. But instead of listening to the prophets, they followed these false gods and they burnt incense to gods that were not gods at all. They'd chop down trees, they'd hollow them out, they'd make images on the trees. And then they'd say, well, this, this must be God. I mean, seriously, if you've got a chop down your tree and then carry it home and carve it. That's not much of a God. Albert Barnes in his commentary just says this, the prophet changes his tone, no longer speaking of that one first call of God to Israel as a whole, whereby he brought up, uh, brought out Israel as one man, his one son, which one called he obeyed. Here he speaks of God's manifold calls to the people throughout their whole history which they as often disobeyed and uh, not uh, disobeyed only, but went contrawise. So Albert Barnes is simply saying, throughout the history of the nation, how he sent prophets to them and they wouldn't listen, they wouldn't hear. And God says, I taught Ephraim also. Now again, we've said Ephraim is synonymous here uh, with the northern kingdom because they were one of the largest tribes in the northern kingdom. So I taught Ephraim also to go, taking them by their arms. You know what it's like when you've got a young child? You see, you hold down his hand. I do it with my girls. You know, if we're in a situation where there's danger or about to cross a road, I say, come on, hold daddy's hand. Because I want to protect them. This is what God says he did. I took them by their arms, but they knew not that I healed them. And see, God had done all these things for the nation, and yet they put it down to other things. In fact, they even attributed God's blessings to other gods. They thought, well, things are going really well, so we'll carry on worshipping these false gods. That must be why we're being blessed. God says, I drew them with cords of a man, with bands of love. And I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws, and I laid, laid meats unto them. The idea is that when a, an animal was uh, treading out the corn or whatever, it would have a, a muzzle on its face, uh, or the, the yoke typically which you'd use to pull a plow or whatever. But when they're treading out the grain, they would actually let them take this muzzle off. They'd release it from their jaws so that they could eat. And God is saying that, you know, I made it possible. I provided for them. I gave them what they needed. I laid meat unto them. But like so many, Israel failed to see that it was God who was leading and providing and blessing and caring and sustaining them. You know, and it's so sad, but it's not often until God removes that covering do we see. 
You know, it's only when the Lord allows us to get into a bit of a predicament that we start to cry out to God in the first place. All the time things are going well. It's so easy just to kind of forget about God, forget that the blessings come from him in the first place. Verse 5 goes on and says, He shall not return into the land of Egypt, but the Assyrians shall be his king because they refused to return. Now, is this a contradiction? A lot of people will tell you, oh, there's contradictions in the Bible. I'll ask them to show you one. Uh, this might be one they pick up, so you need to know how to answer this. But the reason I say, is it a contradiction, is because if you remember back in chapter 8, verse 13, and also in chapter 9, verse 3, it says, they shall return to Egypt. And this verse starts by saying, he shall not return to the land of Egypt. Well, there's a basic rule of biblical interpretation I want you to grasp and understand. It's quite simply this, that a lack of understanding on your part does not constitute an error in the Bible which has repeatedly been shown to be inerrant. All right? But it's simply, just because you don't get it doesn't mean the Bible's wrong. If you approach the Bible with a very simple premise that it is God's word, that it is inspired, infallible, and inerrant. There are a lot of people that don't like that word inerrant because they'll tell you, well, yeah, but there are a few errors. No, there's no errors. I would challenge anybody on that point. Everybody that's ever tried to say, well, there are a few errors, well, show me. And normally you dig into it and you find out, actually, they were wrong. There's no error. It was just a problem with our understanding. So you need to have a high regard for Scripture, because if you don't, you will be shown to be wrong. So how do we understand this verse? Well, it's really not that complicated. You see, the nation of Israel were or never returned to the land of Egypt. Do you notice that, though? Look what we've got. He shall not return into the land of Egypt. Hosea 11.5 says, the land of Egypt. If you look at 8.13 and 9.3, it just says, they shall return to Egypt. It doesn't say the land of Egypt. What's the difference? Well, Egypt represents slavery and bondage. And in that sense, Israel were to go back to Egypt, in a sense. This time it was going to be the Assyrian army that was going to come and oppress them. They were going to take them away to the land of Assyria. But it was just as it was when they went to Egypt. So the verses that we have referenced in 8.13 and 9.3 speak of returning to Egypt in type because that's exactly what they did. They didn't, as a nation, return to the land of Egypt. Now, it's true that some individuals did go down to Egypt, but the the nation itself did not go back to the land of Egypt. There is no contradiction. It's just a a very simple thing. We use those kind of expressions. Uh, We'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, We use various figures of speech uh, all the time in our own language. As I said, certain individuals did go back. Jeremiah makes that point. And we've already read in Hosea that those that do go back there will end up dying there. It wasn't going to be the way out that they thought it was going to be. And just as an aside here, just compare it with the flood of Noah and local floods. God said that he's never going to flood the world again. And people say, well, we still have floods. Yeah, but they're local floods. They're not the worldwide flood that Noah's flood was. Okay, and this is in the same way that the nation never went back to Egypt. Individuals did. Same kind of idea. just want to, before we move on from this verse, just note the prophetic allusion to Antichrist here. Notice this expression, the Assyrian shall be his king. Not Assyrians or the kings of Assyria, 
but the Assyrian shall be his king. Now, of course, there were various Assyrian kings that ended up ruling over uh, and having dominion over Israel, the northern kingdom. But this expression, the Assyrian, is one of the titles of Antichrist. So even in this verse, there's that prophetic element looking forward to what is still to come. That this individual is going to be the one who is going to rule over the nation. Interestingly, in John 5.43, Jesus said to the nation, I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. Speaking of the way that the nation will embrace and accept, certainly initially, Antichrist. Interestingly enough, by the way, the Pharaoh of Egypt was an Assyrian, the one that brought the hard bondage upon the nation. He was an Assyrian himself, which maybe tells of his uh, insecurity problems. Verse 6, And the sword shall abide on his cities and shall consume his branches and devour them because of their own counsels. Another Bible commentator, Kaufman, says this. He says, It was the false teaching formerly the principal guidance of the people that actually resulted in their overthrow. Or, for, sorry, forming the principal guidance of the people. So again, false teaching was the issue. He says, The false teaching was the philosophy which they had adopted instead of following the commandments of the Lord. You know, the parallels with today are quite scary, aren't they? There is so much false teaching around that guides people. But this is what led Israel into this predicament. John Gill, one of the old great uh, writers, said there's branches. He says, that is, the towns and villages adjoining to the cities, which were to them as branches are to a tree sprung from them and were supported by them and being near them prospered or suffered as they did. So the Lord is saying that the cities are going to, be struck by the edge of the sword and the branches, all those outlying villages and so on around. The country was, begun, was going to be consumed. And my people are bent to backsliding from me. Though they called them to the Most High, none at all would exalt him. It's, it's such a sad thing, isn't it, that those who get to hear about God, walk with God, are the ones who end up walking away from him. You know, I... I, I struggle to understand how somebody can know God, know the blessings of God, and then decide they want to give up on God and walk in the other direction. And there's no mandate, by the way, that young people are going to backslide. I've heard people say that, well, you can't stop it. Yeah, you can. You teach them the word of God. What is it what David says in Psalm 119? How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you, and so on. Psalm 119, great, great guide for life in so many regards. But it's not just young people. I heard the other day of somebody who's written worship songs and stood at the front leading for years, is apparently now backslidden. So sad. So sad that people can... Forsake God. You know, I I do think part of the problem is church. And what what I mean by that is that we are very good at papering over cracks and making things seem as if they should be okay. I was having a conversation with Diana the other week. We were just commenting on how in some churches there's that um, expectation that you should be fine if you're a Christian. That, you know, you shouldn't be struggling because you should know the Lord and the joy of the Lord should be your strength. Well, it's true the joy of the Lord should be your strength, but you know what? We do struggle. We do go through difficult times. 
And there's nothing wrong with that happening. You know, throughout Scripture, some of the great saints, people we look to for examples, they struggled. David, what a great example. He was a man after God's own heart, and yet he had some really low moments where he was on the, the edge of despair, but he never gave up on God. I mean, you can give up on everything around you, yeah, but don't give up on God. But, you know, we as a, a group of individuals as a fellowship, we should be honest with each other. Like I've said a number of times, if somebody says to you, how are you? Don't just say, I'm fine. I mean, if you are fine, obviously, please say you're fine. But if you're not fine, tell them. Say how you feel. Say, I'm struggling at the moment. Please pray for me. Well, great, because at least we can do something to help. And sometimes just knowing that other people are struggling is a real help to us because we sometimes have this perception that everybody else is fine. It's just us and nobody knows how we feel. And actually, everyone is kind of, we're all in the same boat. We're all going through the same challenges. That's why Galatians 6.2, one of the most important verses in the New Testament, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Verse 8 goes on and says, How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Admar? How shall I set thee as Zeboim? My heart is turned within me. My repentance are kindled together. Okay, what does all this mean? It's God's heart being poured out here. We see the heart of Hosea in the things that God calls him to and the love that he shows to Gomer, his wife. But we see God's heart really coming through. God saying, I'm going to bring judgment, but then almost that turmoil, if you can have such a thing in the heart of God, Saying, how shall I give thee up? Not wanting to do it. You know, I don't know, as a parent, for those that are parents, you'll know what it's like when you have to discipline a child. And it's the last thing you want to do. But you know you have to. You cannot allow them to carry on with a certain behavior or whatever and think that's okay. The proverb says, spare the rod, spoil the child. You know, the principle's clear that discipline is important. Even as adults, we understand it. We recognize it. We see the importance of discipline. God says, how shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? I don't want to do this, but effectively God is in the position that Israel have left him no choice. How shall I make thee as Admar? How shall I set thee as the Boeing? What are those two places? Well, we'll come to that in a second, but I'll just read Barnes, Albert Barnes' comment. He says this, or my strong compassions are kindled. That's that last part. My repenting are kindled together. He says, my strong compassions are kindled, i.e. with the heart and glow of love. As the disciples say, do not our hearts burn within us, Luke 24:32. And as it is said of Joseph, his bowels did yearn, so Genesis 43:30, literally were hot toward his brother. That's when he meets Benjamin again. And of the true mother before Solomon, her bowels yearned. So you know the two mothers, one that um, uh, says this child was, uh, one dies in the night and the two mothers come to him. The, the true mother, her bowels yearned for her son. That, that's the expression here that God is saying. That's the love that God has. My repentance are kindled. God doesn't want to have to go through with this and yet knows that this is important. So let's just go back to these two places, Admar Zeboim. Well, take it back to Deuteronomy 29. It says, and the Lord shall separate him unto evil out of all the tribes of Israel according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law. So God in Deuteronomy 29 speaking of what's going to come upon the nation, partly what Hosea is amplifying for us now. So that generation to come of your children that shall rise up after you and the stranger that shall come from a far land shall say when they see the plagues 
of the land and the sickness which the Lord has laid upon it, and that the whole land thereof is brimstone and sold and burning, that it is not sown, nor beareth, nor any grass groweth therein, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Admar and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. Even all nations shall say, Wherefore has the Lord done this unto the land? What meaneth the heat of this great anger? So these two cities were part of the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you remember, it wasn't just Sodom and Gomorrah that were destroyed on account of their sin. It was the surrounding villages and towns. And these two, Admar and Zeboim, were two of those towns that were overthrown. And God is saying, how shall I make you like this? You know, I don't want to have to do this, but it's necessary for this judgment to come. Way back in Deuteronomy, we find this prophecy here. Moses recording it for us. So God's saying that he's going to do these things. There's something I just want to highlight, though, just going back to that previous verse in verse 22. It's speaking of what God is going to do to the land. So a generation to come, yet future, that shall rise up after you. And then notice this, and the stranger. It's very specific. It's not any old person, it's the stranger. It's talking about an individual, a specific individual that shall come from a far land. This prophecy is saying that at some point, in a generation yet future from this point, a stranger would come into the land. And they shall say, when they see the plagues of the land and the sickness which the Lord has laid upon it, notice what the stranger is going to say. That the whole land thereof is brimstone. This is what the stranger will say. And the salt and burning, that it is not sown, nor beareth, nor any grass groweth there, like the overthrow, uh, overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Admar Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. And then on the back of that, because of what this stranger is going to say, who's going to come to the land, verse 24 goes on, even all nations shall say. So on the back of what the stranger says, the nations then say, wherefore has the Lord done this unto the land? What meaneth the heat of this great anger? Well, this prophecy has been fulfilled. And we went through a study um, last year some point, going through, which I entitled The Greatest Mystery. And it was looking at, the Jubilee mysteries, the way that God has engineered things at specific times in history. You know, and Israel had got to that point where they were at their lowest point, cast out of the land. The land literally had become as is being described here. And at the very point that they were at their lowest, a stranger did come to the land. And these are some slides I just pulled in from that study. It's all online if you want to go through it. There were six sessions we were going through, looking at various incredible mysteries in God's Word, and then we get in, get onto this one, what I entitled the greatest mystery, because it's staggering. Well, when did it happen? When did this stranger come to the land and make these declarations about the land, which Hosea is saying would happen? Well, it was in the 19th century. In fact, it was in the year 1867. This stranger came from America. He boarded a, a steamship. On a voyage that would take him around the world, he ended up in the land of Israel, specifically coming to the city of Jerusalem. The individual in question just happened to be a journalist, so he kept a notebook of his journey the entire time. The stranger was none other than Mark Twain. I'm sure that some of you are familiar with Mark Twain. He's known as the father of American literature. He was author of books like Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer and so on. He was no man of God. He had no interest in fulfilling scripture. In fact, this is one of his quotes. He said, uh, the Bible, he said, is full uh, of, uh, it's, it's full of interest. It has uh, noble poetry in it and some clever fables and some blood-drenched history and some good morals and a wealth of obscenity and upwards of a thousand lies. 
Uh, this, this guy did not have any intention of fulfilling scriptures. Just make that really clear. And yet, at the right time, God's time, he arrives in the land of Israel. In this very specific year, 1867, it was a year of jubilee. It was the same year, by the way, that Charles Warren also, at the same time, exactly the same time they were in, the, in Jerusalem. In fact, they even stayed in the same place, in the same hotel. And Charles Warren rediscovered the old city. The land was kind of effectively declared to be Israel's ancient homeland again. It had been disputed for centuries, and Charles Warren arrived in the land at the same time as this. But Mark Twain wrote, rags, wretchedness, poverty and dirt, lepers, cripples, the blind, to see the number of maimed, malformed, and diseased humanity that throng the holy places. Now, according to Moses, a stranger would say the whole land is brimstone and salt, and so Mark Twain would bear witness. He said, all desolate and unpeopled, miles of desolate country, the far-reaching desolation, the waste of a limitless desolation. These are the things he wrote. According to the prophecy, the stranger would also say that all the land is a burning waste. And another translation puts it this way, your land has become a scorching desert. And Twain would write, it is a scorching, arid, repulsive solitude. Such roasting heat, such oppressive solitude, and such dismal desolation cannot surely exist elsewhere on earth. Nowhere in all the waste around was there a foot of shade and we were scorching to death. Incredible fulfillment of this prophecy. Again, the prophecy in Deuteronomy says that the land will become devoid of anyone to sow it. And Mark Twain wrote this. All its land is unsown. One may ride ten miles hereabouts and not see ten human beings. These unpeopled deserts, these rusty mouths of barrenness that would never, never, never uh, do shake the glare from their harsh outlines. There is not a solitary village throughout its whole extent, not for 30 miles in either direction. Moses also prophesied that the land would not bring forth produce, nor does it bear, was what the scripture says. The Hebrew word is semak, it's used which specifically refers to sprouting. Mark Twain bears witness to the land's inability to sprout vegetables. He wrote this, The valleys are unsightly deserts fringed with a feeble vegetation, a desert, paved with loose stones, void of vegetation, glaring in the fierce sun, the blistering, naked, treeless land. The prophecy again also states that the stranger who comes will specifically speak of grass, or rather the absence of it. No grass grows in it. We've read that a moment ago. One translation puts it this way, not even a blade of grass. Mark Twain, in his notebook, almost quotes scripture. He says, no sprig of grass is visible. As already mentioned, Mark Twain was a skeptic. He said he had no intention of fulfilling this three and a half thousand year old prophecy, and yet he did. And in addition to the things already noted, scripture foretells that in the day of the stranger, it's going to be said... And the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land to bring upon it all the curses that are written in this book. Incredibly, Mark Twain wrote this. Palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes. Over it broods the spell of the curse. Palestine is desolate and unlovely. And why should it be otherwise? Can the curse of the deity beautify a land? See, Mark Twain's words appeared in articles across America and beyond and will become a witness to his generation thus fulfilling the prophecy. You know, the things he wrote actually went all around the world. And people got to realize just what a state Jerusalem and Israel was in. Again, the timing was right on cue. It was when the land was at its most desolate that these events 
would be the prophetic key to set the stage for the redemption of the land and the return of his exiles, the children of Israel. And this all started that movement that led to Israel coming back into their land. But there was another prophecy that was to be fulfilled before they could return. And it was the idea that was given in Zechariah, a man with a measuring line. That seems to be, speaking of what Charles Warren then did, coming and measuring the city and discovering the old city. There's so much more to this. It's all online. If you want to go through that in detail, I, I still think it's one of the most staggering elements of prophecy, all tied up with this idea of the jubilee where that which was taken or lost is given back to those to whom it belonged, and the land is given back and so on. Everything ties in. And these 50-year cycles, it's just staggering. But that's, again, this is because this is what Hosea is speaking about, what the land will become. That God didn't want to do this, but indeed it did happen. Verse 9, I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst of thee, and I will not enter into the city. What is God saying here? Well, you see, in God's mercy, he didn't execute the fierceness of his anger. So though the land was itself ravaged, the people were spared through captivity, that they might repent. I was reading this last night and going through studying again, just going over my notes, and it just struck me. This is the gospel in a really powerful way because God was saying, you know, how shall I make thee like Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, these two towns, Admar and Zeboim. You see, those were utterly destroyed, but it wasn't just the land, it was the people. Whereas in this situation, God destroys the land, allows it to become as we've just spoken. But he spared the people. How did he spare the people? By allowing them to go into captivity. You see, we look on that and think that's judgment. And it was indeed judgment, but it was also grace and it was mercy. But do you not see the gospel in this? Because this really, really struck me last night. You see, you go back to the Garden of Eden. What happened? Well, those who were to, if they were to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they were told they would die. You see, the earth was indeed ravished. But humanity was given over to a captor, just like the Israelites were given over to the Assyrians. We were given over to death that we might repent. You see, God made a way out. God didn't just destroy us. You know, we often look at death as being a, a dreadful thing. But death is the mechanism that God provided as a way out of this predicament for us. Because then God, through the death of his son, could save us. So just as God was saying, you know, by rights I should just destroy the nation of Israel, just as I did with Sodom, Gomorrah, Admar, Zeboim, and so on, nothing left. But God leads the people away into captivity that they would there be able to repent. With the Garden of Eden situation, God should have just destroyed humanity. But he didn't. He allowed us to go into captivity so that we'd have the opportunity to repent. It's a wonderful picture. Verse 10, they shall walk after the Lord, he shall roar like a lion. We sing lots of songs about those kind of things, don't we? When he shall roar, the children shall tremble from the west. Now jump forward 2,700 years from this point, brings us to roughly where we are now. You know, after Israel repent, they shall walk after the Lord. 
This is what is yet to come. The Lord is going to come back, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's going to come and deliver his people. Now, we're told about the people trembling from the west. Now, Babylon and Assyria were east, so from the west seems to have, most commentators have this uh, understanding that this is speaking of the regathering of Israel from the nations where they've been scattered around the world. And it says, and they shall tremble as a bird out of Egypt and as a dove out of the land of Assyria, and I will place them in their houses, says the Lord. Why does it speak of them trembling? Well, uh, the idea, again, I think is of them seeking the Lord. You know, we read in Zechariah 12 of the way that they will mourn when they realize that they have rejected their Messiah. Interestingly, I was looking at the word that we have there, this word for tremble. It's the same word that is used in Zechariah um, chapter 1, verse 21. Let me just read that scripture. It says, Then said I, what come these to do? And he spoke, saying, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man did lift up his head, but these are come to fray them. That's the word, fray there. Uh, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter it. Again, it all seems to be linking in that at the time that the Lord returns, he will fight for Israel. The nations that have gathered against them will be scattered themselves, destroyed. And the Lord will bring his people back into the land. They'll come from the west, They'll come from Egypt, from the south, and they're going to come from the east, from Assyria. They're going to come back into their land. We already know that they're going to come back from the north because we're told that in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Verse 12, Ephraim compasseth me about with lies in the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah yet ruleth with God and is faithful with the saints. I thought this was really interesting because we've already had references here to Judah being corrupt. But remember David said, Psalm 32, Blessed is the man should be man there, to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. We can actually apply it, blessed is to the many, because we are part of that many. But blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And here, although Judah were sinful, the Lord looks on and sees their goodness. He sees what can be done through them. And God would never ultimately destroy Judah. Yes, they went into captivity, but they did come back. 50,000 or so did come back to the land. And it was through them that the Messiah came. Again, so here Judah, though guilty of following after a treacherous sister Israel, are spoken of as being with God and faithful. There were six righteous kings in Judah. If you look, you'll find five of them from the time of Rehoboam. And then, of course, David as well. That makes six righteous kings. The seventh is still to come. I love these numbers in Scripture. They're so consistent. Ephraim feedeth on wind and follow after the east wind. He daily increaseth lies and desolation, and they do make a covenant with the Assyrians, and oil is carried into Egypt. Again, we read what Albert Barnes says. He says, in leaving God and following idols, Ephraim fed on what is unsatisfying and chased after what is destructive. If a hungry man were to feed on wind, it would be light food. If a man could overtake the east wind, it were his destruction. Israel fed on wind when he sought by gifts to win one who could aid him no more than the wind. So Israel was looking to get support from Assyria initially and in Egypt later. They couldn't help him no more than the wind could. He chased the east wind when... In place of the grain which he saw he received from the patron whom he had adopted, uh, no slight loss. In other words, Assyria took away everything he did have. He didn't help himself at all. And these ideas, the wind, 
and the feet of the wind and the east wind. The east wind was this uh, hot, arid wind that would just burn and dry everything out. And Israel was chasing after these things effectively in type. The Lord has also a controversy with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. According to his doings, he will recompense him. See, God has shown mercy to Judah and even delivered them from Assyria. So although Israel did get taken captive, God had preserved Judah and given them even longer to repent. Eventually they were taken captive by Babylon because they embraced idolatry. And so God wouldn't ultimately withhold his judgment from them. But he took his brother by the heels. Now, although it's speaking of Israel and Judah, now it goes back to the time of Jacob and Esau. And speaking of Jacob, he took his brother by the heel of the womb, and by his strength he had power with God. Remember, Jacob wrestled with God. That's when God gives him the name Israel. Yet he had power over the angel and prevailed and wept. He made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel, Bethel being the house of God. And there he spoke with us. Even the Lord God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial. Therefore turn thou to thy God, keep mercy and judgment, and wait on thy God continually. See, God pleading with the nation. You know, the New Testament principle is to whom much is given, much is required. And God reminding the nation that he'd given them so much, right from their beginning, from Abraham, Isaac, from Jacob, which you've just seen those allusions to. He's a merchant. The balances of deceit are in his hand. He loves to oppress. That's the very nature of commerce itself. Reading something about Oswald Chambers the other day, and he was saying that commerce is, is, is all about somebody putting somebody else down to get where they were. And business is like that. Business is a very cruel thing. Ephraim said, yet I am become rich, and I found me out substance. In all my labors, they shall find none iniquity in me that was sin. And verse 8 really speaks of the deceit of commerce. You know, riches, the way people so often rely on riches. And uh, Ephraim, thinking that they had so much, therefore they would be okay. It doesn't work that way. And I, uh, and, uh, sorry, and I, that I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, yet will make thee to dwell in tabernacles, as in the days of the solemn feast. Now, there seems to be an allusion here to the Feast of Tabernacles. That was supposed to be a, an annual memorial where they were to build tents for seven days. They would dwell in the tents to remind them of their wilderness wanderings. God's saying, you've not done it, at least you've not done it in sincerity, so I'm going to force you to do it. You're going to end up wandering, and it will be effectively all you're going to have is tents to dwell in. You're going to be cast out of your land. Verse 10, I have also spoken by the prophets and have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. You know, this is a very significant statement because God tells us here that he uses models and types. Now, the book of Hosea is a great example of this. And there are all sorts of things. We have synecdoches, soliloquies, we have allegories, all those kind of different figures of speech. In fact, Chuck Mizzler in his book Cosmic Codes lists over 200 different types of figures of speech. Similes, I mean, what are they like? But but all these different types of things, we find different examples of them in Scripture. And God uses this, and we're told that he uses the ministry of the prophets speaking this way to communicate what God is doing, what he has done. So we should look and be expecting to see things. And we've already noted so many of these things, the gospel seen throughout the book of Hosea. The situation with Adam and Eve, another great example. 
Do you know, Adam was not deceived, is what we're told. Paul tells us that. Eve was deceived, but Adam wasn't. That means Adam ate of the fruit willingly and knowing what was going to happen. Why? Because he's a type of Christ. Jesus himself is referred to by Paul in Romans as the second Adam. Adam ate of the fruit because he knew that if he did not, Eve was lost. So he willingly joined her in her predicament so that they could have offspring, so that they could be a way of salvation. Christ willingly came to join his bride in her predicament that she might be saved, to give his life for her. Adam gave his life to save his bride. Christ gave his life to save his bride. Joseph, there's over a hundred ways that have been listed he was a type of Christ. Joseph, there's no sin recorded of him. And of course, we know that Joseph was sinful. We were all sinful and short of the glory of God. But the Holy Spirit has chosen not to record any sin of Joseph. Joseph was rejected by his brothers, just as Jesus was. And yet Joseph was exalted to the highest place. And there's so many other ways that we could look at Joseph as an example of Jesus. Of course, the situation with Abraham and Isaac Abraham the father, being willing to offer up his own son. And the very place it took place, Mount Moriah, the same place you and I refer to as Calvary. It's an incredible model. These things we've gone through, we've studied before, but if you've not studied them, look at them again. They really are incredible as God has used these visions and similitudes by the prophets. Of course, Jonah is another one that Jesus himself refers to. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights, and many, and I put my hand up, I think that Jonah died. The language in the book of Jonah seemed to go far beyond the fact that he was just down at the bottom of the oceans. I think God raised Jonah back to life. And I think he's a model in advance of what he would do with his own son. What happens after Jonah was raised effectively? Well, he goes and preaches to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are saved. What did Jesus do? Well, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. There's so many types we see in all these things. The book of Ruth, an amazing book full of these types, these allegories and these symbolisms and so on. Just just indulge me just a second because this is just so wonderful. I can't miss the opportunity. I apologize if you've seen this before. I've taken you through it before. If you haven't, I pray you're blessed by this. The book of Ruth, right? I'm just going to read to you the account of the book of Ruth. Just one slide. This is the account of the book of Ruth. When Elimelech married Naomi... They brought forth Marlon and Chilion. They were their sons. And they were forced to leave Bethlehem, Judah. Elimelech died and Naomi became Mara. She changed her name. Later, both Ruth and Orpha, who were Gentiles, had the chance to return to the God of Israel. Orpha turned back and sought false gods and Ruth returned to the God of Israel. Ruth found grace in the eyes of her kinsman redeemer who then purchased her and she rejoined to Boaz. What the near kinsman could not do, her Boaz did. Ruth married her Boaz and brought forth Obed. Right, that's just the account of the book of Ruth. Well, if we look at the names, every name has a meaning in Scripture. Elimelech means God is my king. Naomi means pleasure. Bethlehem, Judah is the house of bread and praise. Mara, that name means bitterness. That's what Naomi changes her name to. Marlon, his name means sickness. I'm not sure why they call their kid sickness, but that's what they did. And the other one was Chilion or Pining. Ruth, that's a good name. That means beauty. Orpha means double-minded. 
Boaz, his name means strength. One of the columns in Solomon's temple was named Boaz. The near kinsman is a type of the law. And then Obed, is his name means worship. So those are the names. So let's read exactly the same sentence again. And rather than using the real names, let's just put the meaning of the names in place. And we get this. When God is my king, married pleasure. Now think back to the Garden of Eden. God was their king. But they, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, took over. And Adam and Eve married pleasure, as it were. So when God is my king, married pleasure, they brought forth sickness. That's what happened. And pining. And were forced to leave the house of bread and praise. They were cast out of the Garden of Eden. God is my king, died. No longer was God king. Man became his own king. And pleasure became bitterness. Later, both beauty and double-minded Gentiles had the chance to return to the God of Israel. Those who were double-minded turned back and sought false gods. Beauty returned to the God of Israel, those who believe. Beauty found grace in the eyes of her kinsman redeemer, who then purchased her and she was joined to strength. What the law could not do, her strength, Jesus did. Beauty, believers, married her strength, Jesus, and brought forth worship. That's the story of the book of Ruth. Stunning. Just very quickly, if you look at the book of Joshua, we find that Joshua, the account is really Joshua dispossessing the usurpers from the land. In the book of Revelation, Jesus dispossesses the usurpers from the land. In the book of Joshua, we find that there's ten nations. Three of them fall, leaving seven in the book of Revelation. Yet to come, there'll be ten nations or kings. Three of them fall and they'll leave seven. In the book of Joshua, he sends in two spies. In the book of Revelation, Jesus sends in two witnesses. In the book of Joshua, it's the commander of the army of the Lord that fights the battle. In the book of Revelation, it's Jesus that fights the battle. In the book of Joshua, we find there's seven trumpets blown. In the book of Revelation, there's seven trumpets blown. In the book of Joshua, Adonai Zedek sets himself up as the king of Jerusalem. In the book of Revelation, Antichrist sets himself up as the king of Jerusalem. You see the models, the types. In the book of Joshua, it's at the battle of Beth Horon that we see signs in the sun, the moon, the stars. And in Revelation 6.12, we're told that the same thing is yet to occur. In the book of Joshua, the people hide themselves in caves to flee from God's wrath. Exactly the same happens in the book of Revelation chapter 6. The book of Revelation it ends, sorry, the book of Joshua ends with a covenant with the God who delivered them, and so does the book of Revelation. I'm not going to go through this in detail. I'm going to put it in there. It's in the slides. There's an amazing parallel between Israel and the church. Israel, stay Israel. The church is the church. Israel does not become the church. Never get confused by that. But you see, very quickly, I said I wouldn't go through it, but I've just got to explain briefly, okay? Both of them start off with this period of espousal, 38 years, both of them. Israel in the wilderness, the church before AD 70. And then the, for Israel, there was a victory through this difficult time of war. There's the end of the promised land. For the church, there was the same period of time, referred to in the book of Smyrna and Revelation. And then with Israel, there was complacency that brought about defeat. And then the church got complacent, kind of married the world, represented by the letters to the church at Pergamos in Revelation. And then Israel rejected a king to rule over them. Oh, sorry, they wanted a king to rule over them. They rejected God. And that begins the, the monarchy. Well, the church did the same thing. They wanted a man to rule over them. And so we have the beginning of the papacy. 
But then after that, with Israel, there was the division of the kingdom because of Solomon's apostasy and so on. And we have Israel and we have Judah. We have the same with the church because of apostasy and so on. We end up with the Catholic church and the Protestant church. And the parallels there are staggering when you dig into it. We're going to start our study in Revelation, in Jeremiah, and our Bible studies in a few weeks' time. And you'll see a lot of these things will come out because Jeremiah speaks so much about the differences between Israel and Judah. And you see the Catholic Church, the Protestant Church, you see all these things foretold. Then judgment, of course, was foretold. We're going through looking at these things. The faithful were taken to Babylon for Israel. Well, again, judgment's been foretold, but the faithful will be raptured. They'll be taken out of this world. And then the apostates and the false prophets were destroyed. Those that stayed in Jerusalem got burnt with fire. And it's the same that's going to happen. God is going to bring judgment upon the false religious systems of this world. And then finally with Israel, it was the faithful who returned to inherit the land and a temple was built that Messiah taught from. Well, the same will happen. The faithful will return to this earth to inherit it and the temple is going to be built that Messiah will teach from. The parallels are staggering. I just throw some of those things out. I hope you start to fall in love with the word of God and with how incredibly interwoven all of these things are. And as Hosea tells us here, God has used these models and these types. We should be looking for them because they're stunning and they're staggering and they should increase our faith. Last few verses. Is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely they are vanity. They sacrifice bullocks in Gilgal. Yea, their altars are as heaps in the furrows of the field. Gilgal and Gilead are equally iniquitous and equally idolatrous. The two places were either side of the Jordan. Gilead was on the east side. It had already fallen and become subject to Tilglath-Pileser, one of the Assyrian kings. And so the, the reference here is comparing it and saying that you know Gilgal, which was on this side of the Jordan, shall share the same fate as Gilead, which was on the other side, because they're both now as bad as each other. And Jacob fled into the country of Syria, and Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. Just speaking now again of Jacob and that time he spent with Laban going up to Syria. Had to serve, of course, for Rachel. End up getting Leah and then had to serve more to, to get Rachel as well. And obviously then for the, the sheep he was looking after. And by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, obviously Moses. And by a prophet, was he preserved? God just reminding them of what he's done for them. Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly. Therefore, shall he leave his blood upon him and his reproach shall his Lord return unto him. We end chapter 12 with God saying, you've crossed the line. You had so many opportunities, but you've crossed the line and judgment is coming and we'll see the conclusion of the book, Lord willing, next Sunday. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for these things, Lord, for the reminder that you are a God who is in complete control of history down to days and dates and even specific events that have taken place exactly when your word indicates they would. Father, we thank you for the detail in your word. We thank you for these types, these shadows, these models, all of which tell us that this is no ordinary book, that this is the word of God given to us. And that, Lord, through Scripture we should learn, we should grow, we should be equipped, we should have everything that we need to live this life. Father, help us not be as those in Israel that backslid. Lord, may you do such a work in our hearts that we could never turn from you, even if circumstances around us are just too hard at times. Lord, you are the one God that we can turn to. You're the only one who really understands. 
You're the only one who really, truly cares. And you've shown it by giving us your son. Father, we thank you for your mercy and for your grace. Lord, help us to understand these things, Lord, to dwell and meditate upon them, that they would cause us to grow in grace. We ask it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.